0: from the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio. This is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra
1: and I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement.
0: Welcome to our podcast and thank you for joining us.
1: This podcast will navigate the problems that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences as underrepresented professionals in the music industry.
0: Today's guest is composer and pianist, Eric Gould. He is currently a Professor of Composition and Piano at Berklee College of Music in Boston, having previously taught at his alma mater, Cleveland State University. As a pianist, he has performed with numerous legends of the jazz world and has been featured as a guest soloist here at the Canton Symphony Orchestra. A prolific composer for a wide variety of ensembles, his orchestral work, An American City, was commissioned by the Canton Symphony Orchestra in honor of the city of Canton's bicentennial in 2005. Most recently, he composed our theme music, which you hear at the beginning and end of each episode of our podcast. Eric Gould, welcome to Orchestrating Change.
2: Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here.
1: It's so wonderful to have you today. and. Um... We've talked with you about the podcast from the very beginning. You were actually one of the people involved with some of our first conversations about it. So we're finally actually being able to talk to you, which is amazing. So just to start us off today, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about uh, how you were engaged with music growing up? And then what led to you pursuing a career in music?
2: Well, growing up, uh, I grew up in a household that was literally full of all kinds of music. So uh, my appreciation for it was organic because my parents appreciated music and were knowledgeable about about it. My parents and all of my siblings played music, although only my brother played professionally. So there was literally always music playing in the house. Mm -hmm. And my mother loved classical and Spanish music. My father loved jazz and blues and played violin in his high school orchestra, which was a, a, a very high level music school, a very high level music program at his school. My brother was a rock guitarist in the okay. mold of Jimi Hendrix uh, and could play a mean boogie woogie piano. <laughs> my older sister played clarinet in junior high and high school. And the younger of my two sisters studied classical piano. So there was always recorded music going on and being practiced uh, around the house. I heard R&B, rock, jazz, classical music, African music, blues, gospel, Mm -hmm. folk music in our house alone. And then there were my friends and neighbors who shared music with me. Uh, We had a, a Cleveland Orchestra member that lived three doors down the street, Martin Simon. Um, You know, I I lived in a diverse melting pot of a neighborhood that uh, if you walked half a mile in one direction, it was a Hungarian neighborhood. And uh, that's where I took clarinet lessons. Mm. And when I walked down Buckeye Road in those days, I could hear, uh, I, I could pass a place called Mike Boros's Cafe. And there would be musicians in there doing jam sessions playing Eastern European folk music. Uh, I could walk a half a mile in the other direction, and all up and down Kinsman were clubs where you could hear the sound of jazz organ trails spilling out into the street, even during the day. So music was literally all around me, mm. and I fell in love with it. Mm. So the process of me becoming a composer was pretty organic. Uh, I was always trying, even when I was seven or eight years old, I was trying to create my music, my own music. So the process of ordering sound and the appreciation for ordering sound was already there. And when I was 11 years old, my father took me, He, my father had gone to the same high school as Billy Strayhorn and numerous other people. And So he took me to see Duke Ellington when I was 11 and Mm. I was mesmerized. A few years later, I was playing in an R&B band and I was writing songs. And one day my father was playing Quincy Jones's Gula Matari Mm. uh, on the stereo. And that did it. (laughs) I I stole the record from him (laughs) until I could buy my own. And I played it over and over again and I knew every note of that tune. And I found myself on a journey to learn how to orchestrate black music. Mm. And so I was learning on my own. Uh, and by the time I was in high school, my brother who was 10 years older than me uh, was owned a recording studio, was in a band with a lot of good musicians. Um, and I was, it, it, That was an experimental uh, improvisational band And I was around a lot of very creative musicians who were at least 10 years older than me. Mm. So I learned to ask a lot of questions and to soak up literally everything around me. I went to libraries a lot. Uh, I I read books on harmony and music theory, Uh, listened to music literally all the time. I was the guy who would uh, totally drop out of the conversation uh, if there was interesting music playing in the background.
3: Mm. (laughs) <laughs> so
2: I had other creative interests like creative writing, photography, and film production, and I devoted all of my time to creative pursuits. So I mean, by the time I had my first formal composition lesson, there was literally no kind of music that sounded strange to me.
3: Mm.
2: And my first teacher, uh, a gentleman by the name of Norman Dennerstein, gave me the three pieces to listen to, uh, Georgi Ligeti's Atmospheres, mm. Hale Smith's Ritual and Incantations, and uh, Igor Stravinsky's Le Sacre du Ponton's mm. the Rite of Spring. Mm-hmm. And I liked it all, but the <laughs> Rite of Spring just blew me away.
3: Mm.
2: I bought a copy of Lauren Mazel uh, conducting the Vienna Philharmonic, and listened to it literally well over a hundred times. I can remember just that year alone, 100, over a hundred times. I can remember my my neighbor uh, coming and knocking on my door and saying, "Don't you have any other records?" <laughs> <laughs> you know that. And the big breakthrough for me was learning about form. So mm. once I began to think in a more structured way, I was able to do more with my own music
0: mm.
2: so that's sort of it
0: wow so the a big goal of our podcast is to explore the issue of lack of representation by minorities in classical music in particular women composers and african-americans both on stage as well as in the program of actually the what music is being programmed you've been around for a little while certainly longer than rachel and myself would you say that in your lifetime things have changed at all for the better in this regard or have things kind of stayed the same and not much progress at all has been made
2: Well, you began by saying that I've been around a a while.
0: (laughs) I apologize.
2: So I can admit freely at this point, since I've been outed, uh, I came of age in the late sixties and and seventies and, uh, was always a little bit older than my peers because I was the youngest in my family. My brother was 10 years older than myself. And. And my, I had a sister seven years older, uh, so things that they experienced and were going through, I was witnessing and mm-hmm. and almost living vicariously in some respect. Mm. Uh, in the in, in that period, racism was more in your face. It was a period of really great social unrest. Um, today is not even approaching that, but it it is un, fearfully it might get there. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't think of any African-Americans who I went to high school with who were on a professional track then to become classical musicians in the Western European tradition. Mm. Uh, Most of the talented African-Americans were pursuing Black music. And even when I went to college and I encountered musicians who were pursuing training in Western classical, Western European classical music, most of them were preparing for careers in black music.
3: Mm.
2: And so there simply wasn't the option to get a degree in any art form outside of the European tradition, not limited only to music.
3: Mm.
2: And the more, the most you could do was take a few classes in black music and it often wasn't even referred to or acknowledged as such uh, in many cases. So I came to view the pursuit of a career in classical music as sort of a fruitless endeavor. It didn't, Mm. I didn't, I I just didn't witness any success nor receive any encouragement Mm. uh, until much later. And so uh, today there are entities like the Sphinx Organization Mm. with a mission to help African-Americans and Latino musicians uh, in that tradition. So things are better from that standpoint Mm -hmm. I can remember uh, in in the 1980s, in the late 1980s, being asked uh, to fill in for the executive director of the the Cleveland Music Settlement, where I was working Mm. at the time, and uh, participate in a series of meetings that were hosted by the Cleveland Orchestra. It was a panel uh, in the late 1980s that uh, was there to address the same questions that we're addressing now.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That was 32 years ago.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh there were two African Americans in the orchestra at that time. One of them was my father-in-law and there are two now. <laughs> Although I do applaud and uh uh am happy to see the, the, the recent hire of a uh, Fendi Yusuf who's mm-hmm. uh, an Egyptian, I believe, clarinetist.
3: Yeah.
2: Um there there have uh been a number of orchestras around the country who've hired their first one or two uh so the needle has nudged yeah. over uh, ever so slightly over the years it's it's uh, certainly a more fertile environment than what my late father-in-law had to endure
3: right.
2: and uh meanwhile though the infrastructure of pub- public education mm-hmm. uh and school music programs like the one that my father attended and, and, you know, schools, great music schools around the country like Cass Tech in Detroit and, and uh, Westinghouse, they're becoming more and more of a rarity. So the infrastructure around uh, public education has eroded. Mm -hmm. And so uh, are things better? I'm not sure uh, Mm -hmm. that given the entire, the entirety of the situation that they are,
1: Right. things are much better right and you, you just you just mentioned your your late father-in-law um and your your wife diana is an uh, accomplished pianist and her parents uh, her mother dolores is a you know, prolific composer um whose work i've been lucky enough to hear performed and uh, you, you mentioned your father in law a cellist um they were accomplished musicians in a time where it was rare to see classical uh people of color in the field of classical music even rarer than it is today and it's still pretty rare today so can you maybe talk a little bit about what you know of their experience of of how they got involved in classical music at a time when it was even more rare than it is today
2: well my father-in-law started the cello late uh he, he started the cello at age 16 or 17. oh wow oh my gosh and and, uh, and he was, he found himself in the uh, US Navy band some years later oh. uh, uh, playing in the Great Lakes band uh, with the, it was a great, great band he was playing with people like Clark Terry and, and a number of really great people who went on to become great musicians, uh, but he wasn't, he, he, he wasn't. Uh, I don't even think he was playing cello. He was playing baritone in that band, hmm. and and so he was practicing cello all the time, and um, and only through mentorship and encouragement and determination was he able to catch up. He he went to music school in Chicago at Roosevelt. Hmm. He yeah. uh, moved from Chicago. After he met my mother-in-law. He played in the uh, uh, in the in the Hartford Symphony, mm-hmm. uh, and was uh, playing in various orchestras. He played in the orchestras around Chicago that that played for public events and things, uh, the Grant Park Orchestra, and those kinds of things. Uh, and he eventually uh, studied with Leonard Rose, and um, he was encouraged and. And eventually when uh, an opening came up in the Cleveland Orchestra, uh, he was recommended mm. to audition for George Zell. Mm-hmm. And he did, and he, the rest is history. He yeah. was, we, well, there were two African-Americans that were uh, admitted into major symphonies at that time, that month, wow. uh, and, uh, and he was one of them. Uh, the, so he's one of the first two when he was the longer tenured, uh, the longest tenured because he stayed in the Cleveland Orchestra for, I believe, 39 years. Wow. Oh, wow! Uh, and, um, and the other individual left the orchestra after a, a, a number of months, actually. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, that was his story. Uh, my mother in law had a different experience. She was, uh, she attended uh, first Howard and then Oberlin Conservatory. And I, I recommend that you talk to her about her history. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I don't want to misrepresent her. Mm. Uh, but but um, she had the opportunity to uh, meet and, and study with uh, uh, Margaret Bonds. Chicago is a rich music scene. Uh, so she had uh, you know, people around her who... Uh, she could look to emulate and be around and, and, uh, and that's an important factor in the entire equation. So yeah, she met my father in law, they moved uh, to Hartford. And when they came to Cleveland, she ended up uh, after raising the kids for a while, Mm. um, she ended up teaching at Tri C. Mm. And, uh, and found herself, she, she got her master's at Cleveland Institute of Music, uh, found herself, she studied with Donald Erb, found herself mm-hmm. composing, and uh, and it took off from there. Yeah. Uh, she's since had the, uh, the opportunity to get many of her works performed, uh, Rachel Barton Pine, uh, her recent CD, Blues Dialogues, that's a piece by my mother-in-law. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there, she's been at it. Yeah, and, and and I'm happy to see that she's uh, getting some recognition for her work because many don't, mm-hmm. and and uh, she is. And that's, I'm very happy to see that. Yeah.
0: So we talked a little bit at uh, or a little bit earlier about jazz and your experience in that world as part of what you do as a musician. And of the experience of many people at the time when you were coming of age as a musician, even those in the African-American community who studied classical musician, classical music, they went on to play jazz or as, as you said, black music, which was what uh, in many cases, what was the most accessible for them to get into, to break into uh, as a field. Today, People have come to recognize jazz as an art music and it's played by people of all races. It You can even study it at a conservatory, which as you mentioned, you couldn't do back then and you can get a degree in it. And it even has made its way into the compositional language of many American composers, uh, including African-American composers such as William Grant Still or white composers such as Gershwin or Bernstein. So what is it about jazz that has made it, has given it the ability to cross cultural and racial lines as sort of the only vernacular musical tradition in recent times to achieve the status as an art music.
2: Well, I would argue that it's not the only vernacular music tradition uh, that uh, that has made that crossover. Uh, and I think I, I would like to examine the question a little bit. Um, for instance, Argentinian tango music mm. is a very good vernacular music tradition that's long been accepted. Uh, Astor Piazzolla.
3: Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Alberto,
2: here in Estera, come to mind yeah. immediately.
3: Yeah,
2: uh, Going back further, Béla Bartók mm-hmm. made liberal use of Hungarian folk elements, which are vernacular music traditions. Yeah. Uh, flamenco music is a vernacular music tradition that's long been accepted as art. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danzon is a vernacular music tradition uh, that's found its way into the orchestra's stage uh, through the work of Arturo Marquez and others. Mm -hmm. Indian classical music has long been accepted as art. uh, Although there's a definite lack in my opinion of representation of that genre Mm -hmm. in orchestral circles. Uh, I think um, jazz and before it, ragtime influenced classical music long before it received credit for doing so. So WC composed Gollywog's Cakewalk, Mm -hmm. Ravel's Piano Concerto in G, and pieces by Satie and Stockhausen and Stravinsky and many others were influenced by jazz, while not always being properly acknowledged for as such uh, publicly. So the question in my mind becomes, why is jazz the only African-American music tradition to rise to the status or become accepted as art music. Mm-hmm. And I, again, will say art music. <laughs> <laughs> and I would argue that the the question, the answer to that question is deeply rooted in American history and culture, and the way that the that the music industry evolved within that culture. Mm-hmm. So so if you will indulge me, I'll elaborate a little bit. On oh, that. yeah. So uh, first, about the music industry, let me distinguish between the sacred and the secular music industries, okay? And for the purpose of this discussion, I'll only address the secular, okay? So the secular music industry is broken down into three major components. There's the arts component, the entertainment component, and the utilitarian music component. And the lines between those things are a little bit blurred, but each of those areas is close knit and access to those areas is is controlled by gatekeepers. Mm. And most often those gatekeepers are not practitioners. So none Mm. of the areas are primarily driven by living and breathing artists. So the the utilitarian music industry grows out of and primarily supports advertising and marketing industries. Uh, That's it's the background music for selling you stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And it always has been. So the calliope was an instrument <laughs> specifically <laughs> you know dedicated to that to that that genre. Yeah. Uh the uh the entertainment industry in America largely grows out of the inconvenient and embarrassing chapter of minstrelsy.
3: Mm. And
2: that's an entirely separate discussion.
3: <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> that, that,
2: that, that is, you know, by far, But that's by far where the most African Americans are who are in the the secular music industry are employed. Mm. And then there's the arts area. The arts area has been dominated by Western European classical music and art since Since its inception, the um, institutions of education, funding, and performance. Were put there in place to support that tradition. Mm-hmm. So everything outside of that tradition has long been viewed as something other than art. Right. And so, in the last twenty-five plus years, uh, jazz has made some modicum of progress in in becoming recognized as art, but uh, and 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 also becoming part of the arts. Um, structures that provide funding Mm. education and performance Mm -hmm. uh so access to funding and performance have long been determined by the degree to which the artists conform to the norms of western classical music Mm. and that tradition and by the depth of, of someone's network within that so their pedigree their recommendations the sponsors all that determines access to the to funding education performance Mm -hmm. and that industry the music industry as a whole and especially the arts sector is a microcosm of america so all of the problems of cultural supremacy and exclusionary practices Mm -hmm. and pigeonholing and devaluation of anything that is different those are american problems that are shared by every other industry in this country.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow, I, I wonder if you could expand slightly upon and you, you said this at the very beginning about jazz music influenced orchestra music long before it got credit for doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I feel has been you know, Matthew and I actually discussed this while we were writing these questions about a lot of uh, black music has influenced other cultures, music, especially white music and never truly got credit for doing that. And maybe this is a bigger conversation, but I mean, you know, people bring up Elvis a lot in that conversation and, you know, other artists that, um, borrowed (laughs) music traditions and didn't necessarily give credit to them. So I wonder if maybe you could expand upon that a little bit, and maybe how that has affected jazz music in the long term.
2: Well, you use the term black music, so I'll generalize even further. Mm -hmm. Um, If you if you look, first of all, classical music has has always been a world music, you know, a chaconne. What is a chaconne? A Mm. chaconne is a dance that was created by Brazilian mulatto slaves that somehow, (laughs) 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 ends up using in a mask, you know, uh, you know, there there are there are uh, the Sarah uh, you know, the, the these are dances that that Africans who were present in European culture were were doing. Uh, the, the, the the term Turkish music was a general term to, to refer to you know much of the music that emanated from North Africa
3: mm. uh,
2: so you know uh, Mozart wrote Turkish March and right. and you know uh, so there's always been an interaction Flamenco music in Spain if you listen to Gnawa music from Morocco mm. You hear the, the roots of those uh, th- those elements, uh, the guitar, <laughs> mm. you know, the violin known as the rebec, uh, you know, these are instruments that that existed in Africa, and were there from the time that 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 these cultures were interacting and Moors were interacting with these cultures, yeah. so uh, there's always been a cross-pollination of influences. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a healthy thing. Musicians yeah. are the first people to, uh, to embrace other cultures. Mm. You know, and, and, and jazz has been no different in that respect. Uh, jazz has always been at the vanguard of American integration.
3: Mm.
2: So uh, jazz was integrated before America was um and and uh and appreciated by everyone because musicians tend to just care about art and and beauty and music
3: mm-hmm.
2: so uh it, it's not a mistake that you know George Gershwin would find himself hanging out in clubs in Harlem and soaking up the music it's 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 not uh surprising that that would be the case it's not surprising that L- leonard bernstein would appreciate black and latino music the way that he did um, although i think we would find it an affront to them if, if they were given the latitude to explore and to express themselves in other music musical idioms and we would find an, aff- an affront to them if the only time that they were called was when they needed some Jewish music, mm-hmm. or it's Jewish Appreciation Month. We're going to have you this month. You know, yeah. Yeah. It, we think of it as an affront to them. Well, uh, that that same logic uh, applies to everyone else as well. Right. So if you're a female composer, and the only thing that anyone wants to talk to you about is being a female, or if you're a female arts administrator, and the only and and you get Opportunity after opportunity to talk, and the only thing anyone wants to talk to you about is being a woman, as opposed to being an arts administrator. It right. would get tiresome, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know that at that uh, that is the the challenge that we face. Mm. So, uh, I hope I'm still answering your question. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'll pause. Absolutely
0: no. I and I I think this is a great pivot point to the next topic we wanted to talk about which is the idea of a musical canon that we see in both classical music and jazz music and the hope that through our conversations and then through actionable steps that we can take as an organization here at the canton symphony and hopefully the the uh orchestral world at large that we can start to incorporate these voices of composers other than white men alongside, not instead of, of course, but, and, and do so in a way that's not simply programming a concert of women, a concert of composers of color, but rather fully integrated into an orchestral season as, equal and equally important members of the group of composers that we pick for the season. So on the, on the idea of a canon, classical and jazz music both have one classical music. It's Mozart and Beethoven, big band music. It's Duke Ellington, Thad Jones and count Basie. And then if you go to hear a jazz combo, you'll want to, a lot of people want to hear standards like autumn leaves and all the things you are. Why do canons form and why are performers and audiences alike still so attached to them?
2: Well, honestly, I think the concept of the musical canon comes into existence uh, because people are comfortable listening to what they already know Mm. and things that they're already familiar with. And as such, it's sort of a form of mental laziness. Uh, <laughs> one has to be engaged in order to, to pro- process what's unfamiliar. Yeah. So it's easier to program and perform and listen to what you already know.
3: Mm.
2: So as a presenter or performer, when the more that you uh, cater to your audience's desire to hear only what they know, the more you promote that sluggishness, that mm. laziness, that that incuriosity. Okay. And the performer has less to work work to do if they if they only play what's familiar with them. It, it, so if you are once you once you know a piece, it's in your repertoire, you have a group of pieces, you can always come back to that piece. Okay. <laughs> Learning new music is a completely different animal. Mm. Okay. Uh, it takes a lot of work and to take a different approach uh, or learn new material. And so there's a perceived financial incentive to pacify your audience as a presenter mm. with what they already know, what is familiar with them. But that's a short-term proposition in my view uh, because it only leads to attrition. The, the, the audience gets older, the music becomes more and more disconnected from the current culture. You have to somehow find people who are interested in going back and and reviewing that culture, and th- that pool of people becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. So, the idea of of uh, really being able to expand, you know, to promote your own culture and and to to preserve culture while expanding the pool of people who are interested in things and and expanding the offerings mm-hmm. is a delicate balance. It's one. Uh, it, it's interesting. The piece that I wrote for you, in fact, uh, uh, in 2005, mm-hmm. the last movement was called Legacy and Vision,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and it's it's the natural tension. Between what was and what can be, mm-hmm. and if you look at um, if you look at any society, the progression of any society or in any institution, that balance has always been addressed. You, ha- in order to move forward, you have to have a, a healthy uh, perspective on what can be, and in order to remember and having a society. An institutional identity, you have to remember who you were and who where you come from. Mm. And so both of those things are important. Right.
0: So we've talked in some other episodes about the museum versus gallery aspect of what an orchestra does, or at least what an orchestra should do. The museum aspect being con- performing the masterworks and keeping the masterworks alive, unlike at an art museum where you can just go and see the painting. In order to keep it alive, we have to perform it, of course. But the other aspect is the gallery aspect, the introduction of new works. The gallery aspect scares a lot of people. And as you were talking about, people like to hear what they know. And we've certainly found that in Canton tchaikovsky sells tickets (laughs) always and so what can we do as orchestras as presenting organizations to convince our existing audience to give newer music and unfamiliar composers a chance
2: well it begins with the recognition that that there's a problem, and let's let's look at, at what uh, what that means. If if you have people that that uh, represent a, a, a target group that you're trying to trying to uh, build, only by having people being successful from that group, will will you have people that emulate that should seek to emulate those people. So if Michael Jordan had been a, a, a cellist, <laughs> have people by emulating Michael Jordan,
3: right.
2: okay. Uh, and, and it, it takes, a, you know, it takes a lot of effort to be both, right. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you, if you have someone if someone can look and see an example of someone who is successful that looks like them then they're more likely to emulate that person and so you have to go about helping composers become successful and diversity is something that um that you have to follow you have to first recognize that there's a problem then then you have to recognize that diversity in all of its aspects makes any culture or any organization stronger not weaker so people who believe other than that continue to pursue what is actually fruitless and that is the path of erosion through exclusion mm. so Diversification means more than having a Black History Month program or a women's appreciation program, as you alluded to earlier, Uh, It means having an organization and a culture and uh, regular programming that that reflects a diverse society. And the different worldviews that emerge from that society. So I would I would ask the question, can it be argued that diversity does not make it make us stronger? My father was a Tuskegee Airman. Can it be argued that our armed forces are weaker than they were when they excluded African-Americans? Or are sports worse off as a result of the inclusion of African-Americans? Is the corporate world worse off uh, for having included women is the it is, has the presence of of Asians hindered the technology industry or the classical music orchestra mm-hmm. it it would be ridiculous to make any of those arguments
3: right. mm-hmm.
2: and the same goes for the arts and it applies to the inclusion of every group in America mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I have the benefit of having grown up in a neighborhood that was very diverse right I grew up with Korean, Japanese, Indian, you know, every Jewish people, Hungarian <laughs> people, every everything you can imagine, you know, in the same place. Okay, uh, and I know that that the product of that diversity is rich, but it has to be intentional. And the neighborhood I lived in was intentionally diverse. Mm. It was. It, it wasn't an accident. It was a structured diversity program that was featured in Life Magazine and Look Magazine in the 1950s. It was a, a, it was a, an experiment in integration. And it, it has to be intentional because it just doesn't happen on its own. We've, like I said, we've had these same discussions Thirty years ago, I was involved in the same discussions.
3: Right.
2: So uh, that includes the art sector of the music industry, and so that requires a fearless commitment. You have to. You have to. The it's fear that that uh, leads to the, the the fallacy and the fallacious logic that that, that accompanies a resistance to the diversity, mm. and so that uh, and and one of the main arguments is that the, the equation, the, uh, equating intentional, diversification diverse, diversity <laughs> I'll just start that one again. All right. <laughs> and it, you know, it, it, diversification requires a, uh, fearless commitment. It's, it's fear that keeps people from, uh, uh, diversifying and, and the, often the reaction is to equate diversification with a loss of quality so we don't want to maintain our standards therefore we keep things the way they are uh, mm-hmm. this argument has been proven time and time again to be untrue and uh, in fact has been a tool for maintaining control at the expense of long-term growth so what happens the institution erodes uh the 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 base of participation dwindles and the organization finds itself in trouble. So artists generally don't want to be pigeonholed. Mm. Artists want to be appreciated and supported for their art and not solely limited to representing their own cultural background. Uh, Leonard Bernstein, George Gershwin are examples of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. uh, there are numerous African-American composers. William Grant Still, whereas he wrote uh, you know, you know, Afro American symphony and, and different things, he didn't want to be viewed simply as a black composer.
3: Right.
2: And, and that is, is part of the problem that we have is that we don't view diversity in the right way. Okay, so you try to make successful composers. And what is a successful composer? It's a person with a network of performers. And conductors and ensembles that's willing to perform and champion their music. They, a successful composer has champions within the critical establishment uh, that support that what that composer represents to the discipline and to the culture. A successful composer has sponsorship through commissions and grants and performance opportunities and performance fees that is, is sufficient to at least sustain their compositional endeavors, mm-hmm. and if not their lifestyle. And a successful composer has institutional leverage uh, through those associations and some combination of, of educational performing arts and recording uh, and performing rights organizations that helps them make a living doing that, okay? Mm-hmm. And keep keep regenerating work. And those things come from proximity and access to key decision makers, a pedigree that derives from that access. Mm -hmm. In other words, you've had access and now, oh yes, you attended so-and-so or you had your work performed by so-and-so or so-and-so recommends you. Uh, And the recommendations from influential people are an important part of that affirmation From like-minded peers, uh, the ability to to an opportunity to navigate through uh, a field of equally capable peers. Mm -hmm. No one would argue that there aren't more people who are capable of doing the job than there are jobs. Right, and so. uh, you know, you have to navigate through that. And, the, and the, the determination to just keep going long enough to succeed, the longer it takes, the more determination you have to have in order to, to, to get there. Mm-hmm. OK? Mm-hmm. And that's part of the challenge for Black composers is, that, you know, we begin from the standpoint of a cultural disconnect. Mm. whether we, Whether we perceive it or not to be the case, that we're perceived to be different. There's a perception of a difference, and that's why we're having a discussion right now about black composers. Right, right. Okay, we are thus like less likely to receive affirmation. Okay,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and often we don't have the, the the proximity to key decision makers, and those key decision makers can can help establish a network that leads to all the other things that that we're talking about and so there are less recommendations and 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 it's it becomes a cycle uh there are very few african americans within the critical establishment and so what the the culture what the composer represents to the culture isn't always clearly understood mm. and rarely championed and then even with all the necessary credentials uh, we're still far less likely to be hired uh, by educational and performing arts and recording and performing rights organizations and performing institutions. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I have a colleague who has two bachelor's degrees, two master's degrees, and almost two doctorates and had difficulty getting hired in higher education. That, that's crazy. <laughs> Yeah, and and, and 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 you know, uh, navigating through a field of equally capable peers, it becomes a a, a more difficult proposition, and becoming successful takes a, a much longer time. So you're talking to an old geezer like me, <laughs> you know, uh, and 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 you know, there are plenty of things that that are, that have been left on the table by me
1: mm so. I, I I think it's so interesting how <laughs> I'm sitting here I'm like we ask we ask a question that Matthew and I are pretty sure we might know the answer to and then <laughs> you say so much more and I think on a, a certain level I I understood that this you know we understand it's way more complicated than we need to just program more black composers and then the and then slow the audience will will grow to appreciate it and then things will be better like we know that's not it there's so much more to it but you taking the time to fully explain all of the intricacies behind behind all of these issues at least for me is super eye opening cuz i i mean talking about the critical establishment and 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 just what it takes to even you know get your name out there and all of the the work that has to be done to just get you know get someone to commission a piece and how how can we talk about getting the audiences to accept a a more diverse program if we can't even get a more diverse program because of the establishment and the way that it hasn't moved forward yet and (laughs) i just i feel like it's so much deeper than i even thought.
0: And for our listeners, so much of what Eric just described is the path for any composer. Right. You need conductors and performers who will champion your works. You need critics who will champion your works. This is a hard thing for any composer. I mean, I went to to graduate school, just in the 2 years I was in graduate school, they were probably 15 to 20 composers or aspiring composers that I went to school with. And that's every two to four years, you're going to get a crop that big. And that's in general. And then you look at it as far as minority composers and it's even more difficult. So just to, just to emphasize that for our listeners.
1: Yeah. I So thank you for taking the time to say all of that, because that I I think, you know, we ask what seems like maybe a simple question and then you're like, no, no, no.
2: (laughs) I hope it wasn't too long. No, no,
1: no, no. no.
0: It really it gave us such a clear and vivid picture of how the industry works from the perspective of, of a composer, which not being a composer myself, I I didn't know a lot of it. And I didn't know really the intricacies of it. And it's so fascinating to hear from from our perspective.
1: Yeah, so thinking about, you know, talking about composers of color in history, and how they have existed for a long time. And there are many, many composers of color that have contributed to orchestral works. Uh, They just have not been recognized to the same level as our what we talked about earlier canon. Um, It seems like, you know, now, now knowing all of what you just said, more obvious to me why we don't know about these composers, but I wonder if you could tell our audience a little bit about some of these composers that have existed for a very long time just haven't been recognized.
2: Well, you know, Africans people of African descent have been composing music in the Western European classical tradition since the days of Haydn and Mozart.
3: Right.
2: Um, You know, there's Joseph Boulogne, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, who was, uh, uh, a contemporary of Haydn and Mozart, he was a classical composer, a virtuoso violinist, a championship fencer, a colonel in the military. You, you know, he was he was a Renaissance, true Renaissance <laughs> man, uh, and um, he was the conductor of the leading symphony orchestra in Paris during the time of Mozart.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: so, you know, the, these people have existed since that time. Other contemporaries during that same time. Um, uh, José Mauricio Núñez-Garcia. Uh, he was a, a Brazilian classical composer and was a, a huge exponent of Western European classical music in the Americas. Uh, Frank Johnson, uh, here in in America, was... Uh, one of the very few African American composers during the antebellum period, mm. he was a virtuoso on two instruments: trump, well, not trumpet, bugle, the key bugle, and the violin. Uh, he wrote over 200 compositions. Um, he, you know, he, Henry, Harry T. Burley, or Henry, you know, uh, Henry Thacker Burley is his name. <laughs> Harry T. Burley is was was how he's more. Well, more well-known. He was uh, the composer who uh, turned Dvorak onto Afro-American music and influenced Dvorak's direction in music to the extent where Dvorak uh, became a champion of that music and felt that American that an American classical music would evolve from the music of uh, African-Americans and Native Americans.
3: Oh, wow. uh,
2: there's there's uh there's much more i mean coleridge <laughs> o- taylor who's a uh a, a british musician uh he was a composer and conductor um uh, and uh he was known as the the african Mahler. uh mm-hmm. he was helped by uh edward elgar uh he composed a, a a considerable amount of instrumental works uh, that he had. There was uh, African romances uh, from 1897 and and African Suite the next year in 1898 and Toussaint L'Ouverture at the beginning of the 20th century in 1901. By the time he had finished, by the time he was passing, he he, he had toured the United States three times and had performed at the White House at the invitation of Theodore Roosevelt. R. Nathaniel Dett, now you're going to start to notice a, a real Ohio connection here.
3: Mm-hmm. R.
2: Nathaniel Dett was a Canadian-born uh, uh, composer and organist and pianist. He moved to the United States at the age of 11, attended Oberlin Conservatory later, uh, and uh, had had a rich uh, uh, oeuvre of of. uh american folk songs afro-american folk songs uh and spirituals as the basis for his his piano compositions and he wrote in the romantic style um florentine price or fly excuse me florence price um, was uh she was a chicago and a, a pianist the an organist and and music teacher uh she was the first female african-american female to have a a composition played by a major orchestra Mm -hmm. the chicago symphony played her piece in 1933 her symphony in e minor uh the uh margaret bonds a younger contemporary of uh of of florence price uh also was was uh a prolific composer and collaborated with langston hughes a lot was part Mm -hmm. of the harlem renaissance scene Uh, william grant still who we mentioned earlier uh, was prolific he 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 in fact william grant still was the first american composer he was known as the dean of african-american composers but he was the first american composer of any type to have an opera produced by the new york city opera Mm. and and he was the until 1950 his afro-american symphony was the most widely performed symphony composed by an American, not just an African-American, Wow. okay? Uh, there are jazz musicians who have written numerous works uh, at Duke Ellington, of course, uh, Quincy Jones, Wayne Shorter, James P. Johnson. Uh, there's George Walker, uh, another Oberlin alum who, uh, was the first African-American to have received the Pulitzer Prize in music Mm. for his work Lilacs in 1996. Julia Perry, an Ohioan, uh, was an American classical composer and teacher who combined uh, European classical and and neoclassical music uh, with her African-American heritage. So I could, I wish I could could just, do a separate show on this one. But <laughs> uh, Hale Smith, um, someone I knew who, who was a Clevelander who, uh, and he's an American composer, he, he was the he, he went to the Cleveland Institute of Music and uh, uh, he won the first student award, the student, the first student composer award that was ever given by BMI. Mm. Uh, Coleridge Taylor Perkinson. Mm. Uh, he, he had he was prolific in in jazz, dance, pop, film, television, all kinds of things. And by the way, Hale Smith also performed as a jazz pianist with jazz greats like Dizzy Gillespie and Ornette Coleman and wrote music for and arrangements for these people. I'm talking about prolific people. Mary Lou Williams, a, a giant of a jazz composer and arranger and educator and pianist. Uh, she wrote a number of, uh, of sacred works. Uh, she was a mentor and a teacher to people like Thelonious Monk, mm. Charlie Parker, mm. Miles Davis, <laughs> Tad Cameron, Bud Powell and Dizzy Gillespie. Wow. Okay, They used to go to her apartment in Harlem to take lessons with her, theory wow. and, and, and composition <laughs> lessons. We're talking about giants, Ollie Wilson, uh who uh, there's another he was the founder of the Oberlin Tamara uh, the first uh ever electronic music program in a conservatory mm. uh you know there's there's TJ Anderson who uh was a, a dean at at, at Tufts mm. University and a professor there uh he was the one who orchestrated Scott Joplin's Treemonisha mm. and uh it, it, he was he himself was is a living treasure. He's still alive. Oh, wow. He's down in Atlanta. He recently celebrated it as his 90th birthday. Um, he's a person whose works needs to be heard because he's got some monstrous music. Wow. Uh, there's, right here in Cleveland, uh, Leslie Adams, Harrison Leslie Adams. He's a composer who's uh, he's also a vocalist. He's, he's had works performed by the Prague Radio Symphony, the Iceland Symphony. Buffalo Philharmonic, uh, Cleveland Orchestra, uh, the the Ohio Chamber Orchestra, Metropolitan Opera singers have have performed his works. He's here in Cleveland. My wife recently performed a piece of his with uh, um, uh, Alicia Nelson, the uh, violist, African American violist for the uh, Cleveland Orchestra. Mm, Adolphus Hale Stork. Uh, If you've never heard his music, it's well worth (laughs) hearing. Uh, you know, he's he, he, he's, uh, he's written a ton of music. He's, he's one of our leading composers today. I mean, I could go on there, but my I haven't even gotten to my contemporaries, right. like <laughs> James Newton, Bill Banfield, Anthony Davis, and Terrence Blanchett. Those are, those are people my age who are doing wonderful things in, in this music. There's too many, too many more. Right. And I, I just don't have the time to address all that
0: so one of the joys for me during the pandemic has been discovering some of these composers and it's it was eye-opening for me because of course nowhere in my training what were these composers really ever put on my radar and it was during this time when i wasn't just constantly preparing for the next concert and that one's over on a Saturday, have a day of rest on Sunday, and then Monday start preparing for the next one. When I actually had the time to explore music at a more leisurely pace, I discovered William Grant Still, I discovered Samuel Coleridge Taylor, I discovered Adolphus Hale Stork for that matter. And it has just been a wonderful, they have all been, wonderful additions to the repertoire that I am aware of and ha- quite honestly as a conductor has given me just even more of an excitement hmm. to get back to live performances so that I can start programming this music.
1: And the, and the, the entire time you were talking I my mouth I'm wearing a mask so you can't see but my mouth was wide open because it just reveals the gaps in my education i went to a conservatory of music and yet i i know some of those names because i've done my own research but there was many of those names i did not know and as someone who has gotten an education in music in orchestral music and performance i feel like i should have known a way larger percentage of those composers than I did. And, you know, looking now at, at, at higher education, and you know, we, we mentioned that you're, you're a professor at Berkeley. Um, and, you know, what could institutions of higher education be doing to, you know, better educate their own students, but also help foster students of color who end up going to universities. I don't know what maybe what you've seen at Berkeley. Uh, and I know Berkeley's maybe a different example than something like CIM, just a little bit of a, a different way of doing things. But I, I just, I feel like there's a gap in my education that should have, should have been filled while I was at university.
2: Well, Berkeley is different in many respects, uh, but uh, recently, I don't know if you're aware Berkeley uh, merged with the Boston Conservatory. Mm, yes, And mm-hmm. and yeah. that's uh, what the oldest conservatory in the country. So so uh the 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 breadth of what Berkeley offers uh has increased dramatically. Um but under the leadership of uh Roger Brown and, and the president and uh, Provost Larry Simpson Simpson who's a uh, native of Cleveland by the way mm. uh, they recognize that African American students at Berkeley face several challenges that are unique in a cle- in a collegiate environment and a board member at Berkeley made a, a very substantial uh, financial commitment to put in place a mentoring program mm. uh, that would carry the student through the transition from high school into college and then through their first year and beyond. And it's been very successful It's in, resulted in uh, higher retention rates of a- uh, African-American students. Uh, I, in fact, I would strongly suggest that for one of your podcasts, you interview Larry Simpson, who's a Clevelander uh, he's a former president of Arts Presenters and the New England Foundation for the Arts, uh, as well as uh, the Provost at Berkeley. Um, I think you would find that it's some interesting answers to your questions <laughs> there. <laughs> but um, the I think that there are, the, it, to address the question of what steps can be taken uh, by higher education uh to encourage more people of color i think at the college level by the time a student gets to the college level people are pursuing a realistic path toward a professional career and i have actually seen people in higher education over the course of my lifetime uh, steer students away from classical music steer african-american students away from classical music on the basis of a very realistic perception that they aren't going to be accepted. Mm. And they won't make it. And so in the, in the best interest of the student, these people steered these, these students away from that, uh, seeing people who look like you, as I alluded to earlier, succeed in a given field is the best motivator. Right. So it, really comes back to the institutions themselves like the canton symphony uh arts institutions and performing institutions in general uh institutions within the arts sector becoming more inclusive because all of those institutions contribute to the success of african-american artists and then it becomes a more realistic career path and then it becomes something that people can relate to as an audience because they see people who look like them on stage Mm -hmm. and and so those things are are uh it's all part of uh, of a larger equation that that becomes critical uh and and it really comes back to just being inclusive wow
0: (laughs) so orchestras at the professional level often if not always in this day and age audition their members behind a screen and the goal of this of course is to ensure that the people who are picked for the position the the various openings are the best musician and are evaluated only on that criteria but we recognize that we need more diversity on the stage and that we need to attempt some deliberate efforts to do so. What do you think keeping in mind that we of course work in a union environment and the behind the screen audition is such an established part of what we do, what are, any, do you have any ideas for some creative solutions to this issue to get more minority presence on the stage?
2: Well, first of all, um, I, I, I just as a casual observer, I can think of several ways to defeat the, the, the behind the screen audition process cough when you sit down, Uh, (laughs) you know, uh, there's, there's, you know, there there are a lot of ways to get around it. Uh, But I think that that creatively, uh, it it really comes down to the will to grow. If an orchestra wants to grow, just as if America wants to flourish, then it will be incumbent upon that institution to become more inclusive, because anything else is uh, attrition. It will amount to to uh, basically cutting off your your own foot. You know the the no one flourishes by having a by limiting the the pool of participants, mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm.
2: so as your pool of participants increases, your audience increases, and that is the case for every single institution in America. All right. You cannot limit the potential of of half of your people, <laughs> or right. a, a third of your people, or whatever it is, and Flourish mm-hmm. it takes too much energy to do that. First of all, <laughs> second mm-hmm. of all, that also means that you're going to limit your growth by that much, at least. Mm-hmm. And it's not it's not linear; it's geometric. Mm-hmm. So, I I think that that the will to grow and survive is what will drive and what has to drive this. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah.
2: Any exclusionary practice is limiting the the in the entity that does the excluding it doesn't pay to not have women represented in your organization i can remember when almost all of the people i saw in the arts were males were white males Mm -hmm. okay almost all the professors, (laughs) you know, if even today, in the music industry, 70 some odd percent of the people who run the music industry are white males. It, that cannot be the case if you if if the industry is to flourish. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
3: It
2: it, it, it cannot. And we are, in fact, in attrition. And so I I think that that uh, we have to be inclusive in order to survive, in order to grow. I
1: think at the very, very beginning of our conversation, I think you you mentioned um, public education Uh and you mentioned how it is deteriorated, especially when it comes to music education and i think we all understand and for the people who have been listening to the podcast since the first episode will will have heard us talk about the pipeline of of having good education, good music education at a young age that is accessible and equitable for all types of students. So that in 20 years, once they've gone through university, they have the capability to audition for orchestras and have, you know, diversity on stages that way, um, looking at our education system now, that doesn't exist <laughs> for all students so i, I don't know what your pers- what your perspective on that is in creating a more equitable education environment
2: well first of all uh there is a larger african american middle class than there ever has been numerically mm-hmm. so there are numerous students there's there i have through attendance at at uh the color of music festival, the uh, the festival that they have at Eastman School of Music uh, in Rochester, uh, through attending events at the Sphinx Organization, um, through numerous channels like that, I have seen a, a good amount of, of musicians who are capable of playing in an orchestra.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: They're there. Mm-hmm. And it really comes down to the, the will to hire them. Every member of the orchestra is not a principal. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 ability to hire someone who can do the job well, not lower your standards a bit, that's, that's already there. And it comes down to the will to do it.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: And that's where the rubber hits the road to me. Mm. Uh, we I have been encountering African-American musicians of high quality for a long time now. And I know that they are there. And I've seen some, some fantastic musicians have to move on. Mm. Uh, you know, it's or or basically um, move into the teaching realm as opposed to getting an orchestra job or or something else. It, it, you know, there there are are people that are capable of doing these jobs. And I think it's incumbent upon uh, any industry that wants to grow to to mine the potential of of their pool. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can't expect that we're going to fix the U.S. education system first before we right. can address this problem, because the U.S. education system is not in good shape.
3: Right.
2: But there are, there is more diversity at high-level schools than there ever has been.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And there is more diversity at, at uh, private schools schools with great music programs, there are people taking lessons and and attending prep programs all over the country. I have a, a friend whose whose uh, daughter is is a fantastic young cellist she does. She's not even considering her clear uh, a career in classical music, because that doesn't seem to be a realistic option.
3: Mm. Mm.
2: And 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 what I would say is that that's the problem that we need to address. There needs to be evidence that you can succeed. I lived, as I said, I lived in a neighborhood where a a Cleveland Orchestra member lived three doors down from me. It was a nice neighborhood. He was obviously able to make a a living. I I, I could see that people could make a living playing music. Mm Well, Mm -hmm. he didn't look like me, but he was at least a musician. I could see that people did that. It wasn't something I was able to see for myself or for, and I didn't see anyone else on that pathway. But as I said, others, you know, if they have the opportunity to see someone who who looks like them, then they can see a possibility of of success for themselves in the field. Mm -hmm. And that's what it comes down to. Yeah.
0: So the most crucial piece of this is going to be getting more representation on the stage. And of course, uh, as we mentioned on the concert programs on what is played, what pieces are played
2: as a regular course of events, of course, of
0: course. And I, I would say that something we can do right now is start diversifying our programming. We can do that right now. Mm-hmm. And then the process of getting, actually getting more musicians from uh, minority musicians on to the stage is going to be probably a bit longer of a process, just given the nature of how orchestras work. There's people have their chairs for a long time. We, people retire. Eventually it, it, it's a longer term process. So with that in mind, what are some things that we as professional orchestras can do right now to engage the minority communities that our orchestras would like to serve and in a a meaningful way?
2: Well, it's interesting. That exact same question was asked during that panel meeting 32 years ago. Mm -hmm. And, And I made the suggestion that that you could do you, you could alter your programming and one would have thought that i, I that, that i uh, i don't know pulled out a hand grenade and put it on the table. <laughs> <laughs> you, oh, <gosh>. you, know, <laughs> you know i mean it, it it was that yes you you change your programming you know you make some alterations to your programming you 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 engage musicians of color and I consider everybody except you know uh, European <laughs> Caucasian <laughs> Americans to be people of color. All right you engage them as a matter of course. all right uh, it, it, you know you don't have to wait till women's day to right. to have a women's program. If you're doing that, then you won't only have a bunch of people show up, on that program, they will start to come throughout the year. Right. And, and then, you know, it, and if, if you know, if the nutcracker is selling you tickets, then on that same program, you can do something else. Right.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> and, and that's fine. And I think that, that the idea of, of changing programming, as i said, it's easy to do what you've always done. That's the easiest thing to do. The, the more difficult thing, uh, and I know this from my own experiences as an, as an administrator, is to be creative every time out the gate. And to think up new approaches and new ideas, and that requires a different level of energy and it requires work, mm-hmm. but the work pays off because of the fact that you now have something that you can look forward to as a benefit.
1: Right. Yeah. I I think this, this entire conversation, um, you know, we, I think Matthew and I, through conversations that we've had doing this podcast, we've come to realize a lot of things that we did not know before. And it has become more obvious to us how, s- how how very very complex some of these solutions are going to have to be and how very simple some of the other solutions are as simple as simply just programming things just putting it on the stage and doing it and and even if there might be some backlash even if some or audience members aren't going to like it in the long run like you have said multiple times today it will pay off and it will lead to growth for an organization instead of the uh, you know as the deterioration or attrition are all the things that you have said today and um i just really want to thank you for how how much you have shared with us today i know we've been talking for quite a while now and i very very much appreciate it and uh before before we finish out this this conversation i mean this podcast is called orchestrating change Because that's exactly what we want to do. So I I was wondering if you could just any final thoughts or any other things you have wanted to say today that we haven't gotten to about how we should be orchestrating change here at the Canton Symphony.
2: Well, I would say, look inward. Uh, if you, if you don't have any, any African-Americans working there, uh, that might be a place to start. With, as far as African Americans are concerned I'm mm-hmm. looking at a female so and I know that, they, <laughs> that the executive director is a female mm-hmm. uh, so I, I I know that you have representation by women uh, I know that Kelly Corcoran who was the conductor for the piece when I mm-hmm. uh, was last commissioned by the orchestra what uh, that was she she was a female conductor that you had do you have any African-American conductors, you know, and, and, you know, do you, uh, you know, maybe an assistant conductor, a guest conductor, uh, if you need any names, I can make some recommendations to you, Uh, you know, that can come in and and do something for the orchestra or with the orchestra, uh, just as a matter of course, not waiting till February to do it, but June, or whenever your Susan begins or ends September the the thirtieth or whatever it is, you can have someone else do something. Mm-hmm. Um, you can you can have a person around you that can inform you of possibilities. People who are uh, who are African composers, African American composers, or uh, you know Latino composers, or someone composing. Indian music, whatever it is, if you have someone around, around you who can inform you of those things, then you'll be uh, more in the loop and, and more likely to, to be able to incorporate those things into your thinking and your programming. Mm-hmm. So I would say diversify intentionally.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Eric Gould, thank you so, so much for joining us today.
2: Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and I look forward to uh, speaking with you in the future and in in the post-COVID era in person. Yes,
0: Absolutely. Eric Gould, composer and pianist, professor at Berklee College of Music, and who has appeared as both a composer and guest soloist here at the Canton Symphony Orchestra.
2: Thank you very much. The
4: Stark County Minority Business Association is a nonprofit organization comprised of business leaders invested in the economic growth of the Stark County community and beyond. This organization provides services to minority business organizations and serves as a resource for referrals and recommendations. Their goal is to enhance partnerships between minority business members and majority owned businesses to create greater economic impact in Stark County. The Stark County Minority Business Association provides numerous services to its member organizations to assist them in growing their establishments, creating jobs to enhance economic growth in our region, and procuring loans and contracts to stabilize their organizations. One of their featured programs is the Revolving Loan Fund, which was established to create pools of funds for member organizations to enhance, expand, or create job growth and development. Funds for the program are accumulated through membership dues and philanthropic entities. For more information, visit starkminoritybusiness.org.
1: Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra.
0: Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams.
1: Our audio engineer is Nathan Maslick.
0: Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.